Um, why don't you turn with me to John chapter 4, just looking at a one-off sermon today, on really what is a profoundly shocking story. And really to understand, the sh- I want to explain why it's so shocking. It's one of those very familiar passages, if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll have read this passage, and, and sometimes when that happens, you, you lose sight of just how... Um, unexpected this story is because it's all about the identity of the woman who Jesus is speaking to. I want to suggest to you that this whole story is really a kind of paradigm example of what it means to experience shame. And as we look into this story, I want to show you what Christ's response is to the problem of shame. I'm going to read from John chapter 4, verse 1, um, and then we'll go all the way down to verse 29. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's midday, and that's an important fact. We're going to come back to that. A woman from Samaria came to drink water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman doesn't understand at all. She says, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the the well and and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, she doesn't really get it. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have have to come here to drink, to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, have, you, the one you, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, so I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then later on, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This is a really shocking story. Do you hear when the disciples say, uh, in response to when he's talking, they, they come back and they're silently questioning. They're saying, why is he talking to this woman? The reason this story is so shocking is because of the identity of who Jesus is speaking to. She is something of a social pariah, a social reject. She's collecting women in the water at the middle of the day. That is not normal. In, Middle East, in the Middle East, it's hot. You, many of you have been to a hot country, come from a hot country. You know what it's like. Middle of the day, you just want to lie down and you don't want to go out. Whereas, in fact, it's very normal in those countries to go in those days. You would have been collecting water at the beginning or end of the day. But she's getting it right in the middle of the day. You would have gone with your other, other women. There would have been a sense of a communal activity. She has gone on her own. We can infer from that that she is in some sense, a social reject, a social pariah. Probably, as, we, as we'll gather, her sexual history means that she's probably the kind of person who, as, people pass in the, as she passes by, people are whispering at her, people are glaring at her. There's a sense of social shame that she carries. Actually, it's not just her. Even her identity as a Samaritan woman. You noticed in, in verse 9, she we responded. When Jesus um, asked her for a drink, it sounds kind of normal to us. You know, you're at a well, you don't have a bucket, you ask someone for a drink. It's not that weird. But she, she's surprised. She doesn't understand. And behind that surprise, it, she, John notes to us, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But that doesn't even really do it justice. The Samaritans in the minds of the Jews were an unclean people. An untouchable people. You know, you've heard of, you've been to, uh, heard in India, they have a, a, a caste system. You may have heard of the Dalit people. The people who are kind of untouchable. The people who are at the lowest of the low in society. In a sense, the Samaritans had that kind of status in the minds of the Jews. They were people who had um, accepted foreign gods, who polluted themselves with foreign gods, had intermarried with others. And so they, in a sense, the Jews would think of the Samaritans as kind of dirty dogs, It's not like a feud. It's more like they wouldn't even eat with them. They would look down on them. They would shame them. In fact, um, a law was passed within about a century of Jesus' ministry that captured something of the popular sentiment towards Samaritans. uh, The law said, all the daughters of Samaritans are menstruants from the cradle. In those days, to menstruate, uh, the woman's period, um, she was unclean in some sense. And yet they, they were saying, actually, no, these Samaritan women, they're permanently unclean. They're, like shit, they're, they're dirty from birth, so to speak. Permanently unclean, born into shame and denigrated by their neighbors. And then on top of that, this woman has a messy relational past. Now, we can't, we're not given all the details, but I think we know enough to know that she has in some sense, carries a sense of social stigma, a certain sense of damaged goods. To be divorced in that culture was almost certainly that the man would have uh, got to get a kind of certificate of divorce. So essentially, she has been cast aside by five men. I mean, it's possible, of course, that she had five husbands and they've died, or perhaps it's a mixture, but it's unlikely, I would suggest, that it's just that she just tragically had five husbands and they've died. Or even, I think it would be unlikely that she has kind of committed adultery five times, and because I think she probably would have been stoned. 
Actually, what we've got is a kind of messy picture, probably that she has been both sinned against, she has been in some way discarded by these men, but of course she is equally, we see her own sin. She is living with a man who's not her husband. In a sense, she's a a window into that complicated reality that we all experience, that we are both sinners who have transgressed and also we have been sinned against. Put this all together, her Samaritan status as an unclean people, her individual status as an unclean woman, cast aside by a litany of men, as, and, her state, and her coming in the middle of the day, what we have is a picture of shame. We have a window into the reality of what shame is. And I want to show you really in a sense that, that, that just as she is a paradigm of shame, we also see how Christ comes in and transforms her, how Christ meets us in our shame and transforms us and liberates us from shame. You see, even in this story, just this brief encounter, the woman is transformed. She runs back in. She leaves her water jar at the well. So desperate is she to run back to town and tell them, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. Verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is not just a marveling at Christ's prophetic powers. This is more than that. This is a woman who's been shamed, who's been isolated, who's been hidden away. And she said, come meet the man who sees everything about me, who loves me. Come meet the man who's transformed me. She is liberated from shame. And I want to show you what it means when we encounter Christ and he liberates us from shame. We see the beauty of Christ. But first of all, we have to diagnose the problem. I want to diagnose the problem. What is shame? And then I want to show you what Christ's response is to shame. First of all, shame is not guilt. It's connected very closely, but it's not the same. Guilt says, I did something wrong, and so I need forgiveness. Shame says, there is something wrong with me. There's something intrinsically wrong with me. It can be a deep sense of being intrinsically unacceptable. One one author said, to be covered in shame is to feel the self engulfed in something disgusting, even hideous. It's a sense of kind of inner ugliness, a sense of worthlessness, a sense of failure, moral or otherwise. The sense of there's something wrong with me. Often shame is accompanied by feelings of self-loathing or self-hatred. It's a fundamentally social thing. It's that sense of that ugliness that then you don't want other people to see that ugliness about you. It's a sense of, so often shame is accompanied by a sense of wanting to hide oneself. A sense of, you know, strong embarrassment. You know, you've ever had a really strong sense, you've done something and suddenly everyone finds out about it and that you feel the, the heat in your cheeks. You feel that moment as people see your, something you've done or, or something about you and, your, and that ugliness is revealed and that sense of, I don't want anyone to see that. You see the shame in the way that we hide away from each other, how we so often don't reveal our true selves to others, or certainly we don't reveal that dark part of our lives that we don't want anybody to see. We see it all in this woman, a sense of social outsider, a sense of uncleanness, a sense of, the Bible would use the language of defilement, a sense of there is something ugly within me, both because of things that she's done and things that have been done to her. So why do we experience shame? And our culture would say shame is a psychosocial phenomenon. We experience shame because people tell us mean things about us. And there is some truth in that. I'm not denying that. But really, to go for a biblical understanding of shame, you have to go right back to the Garden of Eden. This is not not just a worldly concept. This is intrinsically linked to the reality of sin. 
What happens? Do you remember? After Adam and Eve sin, what is their first reaction is to go and hide. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, you might say that sounds normal. Well, hang on a minute. Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve are created, what does, how does it describe them? Naked and unashamed. They're naked in all their naked glory, so to speak, and, and they feel no shame. Now, to many of you, that feels a deeply alien concept. And yet, sin comes into the garden, and suddenly that sense of naked and unashamed is tarnished. What happens is, shame is like the ugliness of sin... So the thing that I've done has polluted me, and suddenly I need to hide. Suddenly I can't let you see the ugliness that has rubbed off on me. It's a bit like the way, you know, like a, a child might play with permanent markers or pens, and then like, a, I'm thinking like four or five-year-old kind of thing, and then they might hide the pens away. And, and then you come in, and they're, like, and, and they're like, oh, I wasn't playing with pens, but you can see the marks on their hands. It's like shame is like the indelible mark, the ugliness of sin has marked itself on our bodies, and actually we're aware of that, and so we want to hide. That's what Adam and Eve, they hide in the garden. As soon as they're aware of their sin, there is an ugliness about them. Their beauty, their honor, their dignity has been tarnished by sin. And so they do not want to show themselves to the living God. Well, of course, we hide from God. We hide from each other as a result. But also there's shame for things done to us. It's not just sin that we've committed. It's sin done to us. The most profound example of this is uh, Tamar and Am- Amnon, her half-brother. They're uh, both children of David. And uh, Amnon uh, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And he lures her into his bedroom with a kind of like, oh, I need some food. Can you get my sister to bring me some food? And then he grabs her. And as he grabs her, this is what she says. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? Well, hang on a minute. I thought he was doing the wrongdoing. Why do you have disgrace? Because just as sin leaves its indelible mark on us when we sin, so too shame, that shame is almost rubbed off on her. Almost the sin of the act that he's done has in some way caused shame in her. You speak to a woman whose husband commits adultery and then goes off with that woman and gets married to her and she feels a sense of shame because his sin has in some way shamed her. The sin has rubbed off on her. We carry the scars of sin and shame is like a, a, a vision and a, a, that, that reality of, those, those sh- uh, sh- of that shame, of that mark on us. Actually, it's why, you know, you may have heard the victims of sexual assault often don't come forward because they feel defiled. They feel a sense of uncleanness, a sense of disgrace because of what has been done to them. And so they hide. They cannot bring themselves to talk about what has happened to them. And of course, that extend, this kind of shaming doesn't just extend to the sin of you know, sexual abuse, although I think that's probably the one that's visceral, but equally, we all know we've heard those kind of lies. Some of you are carrying shame because of body shame. You know, People have looked at you, or you've perceived them to look at you, or just that you, you've seen images that make you feel like you're, that in some way you are worthless, or you do not have value because of the shape of your body, or because a, a sense of uh, just ugliness 
Uh, even racism, by the way, I would argue is a, is a sense of social shaming, is a sense of sin, saying this person is worth less because of their racial um, identity, because of who they are. Lies that attack us and denigrate us and leave us feeling worthless. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can personally relate to this. In fact, you say, this is the story of my life. Some of you, you maybe only can relate to some of this. You say, I can feel a sense of shame because of that thing I did, that lingering moment in your life from something you did or something that was done to you. I guarantee you know someone who feels like this. I've spent lots of time recently, a number of pastoral situations, again and again, just seeing people carrying deep sense of shame. That sense, a lingering sense of uncleanness because of layers of guilt, that secret sin that you just feel like I'm just ongoing, 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 and, so, and I just feel utterly dirty. It's why uh, William Shakespeare described Lady Macbeth in, one of it, in Macbeth, his play, no surprise there. Um, the, um, uh, she's, she's had a hand in killing King Duncan, and she says rhetorically at one point, will my hands never be clean? Some of you feel that sense of, will my hands never be clean? Layers of accumulated guilt, shameful acts that burn in your memory, that abortion, that sexual dalliance that haunts you now. You feel a sense of damaged goods, and behind that perhaps sunny persona, you know that you're hiding, that you're not revealing your true self to others. That sense of isolation that follows shame, or you've believed the lies of that social shaming of the things people have said to you. The shame of feeling like a wretched mother. The shame of feeling like immersed in sexual sin. Actually, I think really what has happened is our gospel is too small. Quite often we understand ourselves as followers of Christ who are forgiven but still dirty. Forgiven but dirty. And we need to unpack how Christ meets us in our shame. But I also want to just suggest this is essential for connecting with culture. This is a prominent phenomenon. Lots of people will give language around shame. Uh, Brené Brown, one woman, uh, kind of expert on the subject or, or very popular speaker, describes a modern epidemic of shame, uh, a lingering sense there's something wrong with me. Two celebrities stand out in my, who've been very honest or we've, we've seen about their shame. One was a comedian called Tom Allen. And he wrote a book, uh, his biography, I think it came out last year, called No Shame. And in it, the foreword, he says this, I have called it No Shame because when writing this book, I realized that the times in my life that I wanted to share with you all seemed to have shame as a theme. I've come to realize that everything I've done is either a response to this feeling or a protest against it. He says the, the narrative of his life is defined by a pervasive sense of shame. Caroline Flack, a woman who was the um, presenter for Love Island who committed suicide in February 2020, uh, she committed suicide after she'd been arrested for domestic violence. And one ex-boyfriend, uh, after her death, said, described how she died of embarrassment and shame. She, in an unpublished Instagram post, I believe, found out after her death, she described years of brushing, years of shame under the carpet. Sometimes this sense of so profound, it leads literally to want to kill yourself. And what I think, why this is so relevant is because we live in a world that denies the reality of guilt. It denies any kind of sense of, 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 of moral accountability before the living God. But I suggest that this pervasive sense of shame that so many in our culture feel is actually a window into the ugly reality at the center of the human heart. That in a sense, even if our culture denies the idea of guilt and moral responsibility before the living God, the fact that there is a sense, a pervasive sense in our culture of a kind of ugliness inside me Actually, that's our culture, even if they don't believe in God, recognizing the reality of sin has left its mark. 
You, can't, you can kind of deny the idea of sin, but you can't deny that it's left its mark on you. Shame is a window into the ugliness of the human soul. It's not just a purely social phenomenon. Shame exists because sin is ugly. Pride, adultery, sex with someone and then just discarding them the next day. Only caring for yourself. All of these sins, they are ugly. And so shame, in a sense, is a window into that ugliness which has left its mark on us. It's not just a problem for the minority. Shame is universal because sin is universal. And society should be crying out with Tamar and this woman... Where could I get rid of my disgrace? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And we have the answer, brothers and sisters. Christ meets us in our shame. I want to show you Christ's response to shame, which is just so beautiful and liberating. The first thing, I want to give you three things about his response to shame. The first thing is he sees your ugliness and moves towards you. Christ does the very opposite of what you'd expect. He sees the full extent of this woman's ugliness and moves towards her. But you remember I say ugliness, I'm talking about what's been done to her and what she's done. And the same is true for us. She experiences the liberating gaze of Christ. This is the defining reality of this story. That's why she goes back to the town and says, come see the man who told me everything that I did. She has encountered this gaze, this man who's seen everything about her. And that gaze that that you would have thought would have been exposing, you would have thought would have humiliated her further, just as you can imagine, she would have been humiliated by so many in that town, in her community. It's the opposite. That gaze liberates her. Imagine how she would have felt. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, just come back with your husband. Immediately, heart drops. Oh gosh, I have to tell him about my husband. The fact that I don't have a husband. The fact that I've had five husbands. And then, so, so she deceives him. I mean, effectively, whether she doesn't explain, she says, I have no husband. It's, it's deception by omission. She's hiding, just like we all hide our sin and our shame. And yet, Jesus says, no, 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 I've seen everything about you. Before she even tries to come up with some sort of excuse, some sort of attempt to try and hide her stained garments, says, Jesus says, I've seen everything about you and I love you. He's already offered her living water back in verse 10. He's already, he's already offered her. It's almost like he's saying, don't you remember? I've already invited you to become a true worshipper of the living God. And yet, he, and yet, and he says, I see you. I see everything about you. I see the full extent of the ugliness that you've done and has been done to you. And rather than moving away from you, because she is in that culture, she understands I'm defiled, people want to move away from me, he moves towards her, knowing everything about her. We are all like this woman. We all wear masks. Social media, we portray a curated vision of our lives. Half-truths about ourselves hiding our darkest sins, not wanting to confess what's really going on in our lives because we can't deal with the idea that someone would see everything about us. Because we assume if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't love me. And yet we, in Christ, we encounter a love that it says, I fully see everything about you, I know everything about you, and I fully love you. In Christ, we encounter a God who fully knows us and fully loves us. Just imagine for a moment how that gaze would have felt to look into Christ's eyes bearing down on you. And he says, I see everything about you and I love you. I invite you into this living, to be a true worshiper of the living God. I'm inviting you to receive this living water. How liberating that would have felt. And what it really portrays, I think, is Christ's light is both painful and liberating. You see, you know, you'll have seen in the New Testament, in fact, in John's Gospel, we often see the idea that Christ is the light. He shines into your life. And to come to Christ is to be confronted with the dark ugliness of our souls. 
In fact, it's often why someone becomes a Christian, and the first thing is they say, I'm now doing worse than I was doing before. It's not that they're doing worse, it's that they now see the full ugliness of what was going on in their lives before, that their eyes were darkened to. You're more aware. The, the brute reality of the living God, and that's why some would, would pull away from God, is we worship a God who sees everything. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, to some of you, if you're not a Christian, that will feel deeply uncomfortable. What, you're saying the living God can see everything about me? Some of you as Christians, you're suddenly aware of that fact again, and you're thinking, I don't like that idea that the living God would see everything about me, all my thoughts, that, that thought that I, I hoped no one else would see, that thing that I, you know, I deleted my history, and so I, I thought it was gone. No, the living God sees everything. That is a profoundly uncomfortable reality. You cannot hide from him. You can't put a pretense on. You know, the living God sees past those, those prayers, those, that spiritual voice you use when you pray, or, or that virtue signaling that you do on social media, or all the attempts that you do to try and put a veneer, a, a mask on to impress other people. The living God sees past all of that. That's almost an unbearable thought until you remember and you see Christ's posture in this story, that he sees everything and he loves her. By the way, this is why some men refuse to come to Christ. In John chapter 3, just before this story, um, note how he describes, and this is the judgment, the light, Christ, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than their light because their works were evil. And then he goes on. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Man in his sin, when he sees the light, wants to run away from it. Doesn't want his sins to be exposed. For some people, the idea of coming to the living God is an anathema. Why? Because I would have to confront the reality of my heart. As soon as you come to Christ, you will have him put his finger on you, on the the different parts of your life. Think about the rich young man. In Mark chapter 10, he looks like a good guy. He ostensibly answers Jesus' question, says, well, I've kept those commandments from birth. We can assume he's kind of an upstanding member of community. But Jesus puts his finger on it. And says, no, I can see your own heart, mate. I can see your heart. I can see that you actually love money. That you might have fulfilled all the commandments, but I can see in your heart that you have a love of money. And until you give everything away, you will not be able to come to the living God. Christ sees everything about us. He puts his finger on it. See how the way he, different ways he responds to different people. Nicodemus, in the previous chapter, he says, you know, he basically says, are you call yourself Israel's teacher? Effectively, he's challenging his religious pride. And yet with this, with, with this woman, he doesn't say any of that. He draws her to himself. Jesus knows what's going on in our hearts and gives us a, almost a unique invitation. He sees and knows what's going on. In fact, it gets even worse. Christ will return in judgment and one day will expose the deeds of man. But this is not only an intimidating truth. It's the reason we can bear this reality is it's profoundly liberating. It says he knows you completely and is still inviting you to worship him. You can finally acknowledge your mess rather than just denying it. Rather than, you don't need to pretend to yourself or pretend to anyone else that you're sorted anymore. You can actually accept the reality of the the messy heart that you have and the conflicting desires and the fact that actually underneath it all there's pride or lust or whatever it is. The only thing that allows you to come into the light is the never giving up, intense love of Christ, the steadfast love of Christ that we read about in that psalm at the beginning of the service. This is so much better than the modern affirmation of this world. Our culture will tell you the response to shame is to affirm yourself, love yourself, compassion to oneself. What? That is just so 
unable to fix the problem because it doesn't deal with the ugliness in your heart. It's almost like you're just papering over the reality. You can see ugliness. You can see things that have been done to you, things that have been done to you, and you're just kind of going, oh, but love yourself. Make yourself feel, like, just affirm yourself. Actually, it doesn't do it because it doesn't deal with the real problem. Christ sees everything. He doesn't, he does the opposite of modern affirmation. He doesn't go to the woman, you know, you're, 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 you're amazing. Don't you know you're such a good water carrier, whatever he does. No, he, he doesn't, he doesn't do modern affirmation therapy. He says, I can see everything about you. Here's all this, what's going on in your life. And she is liberated. If you're feeling like a pile of poo-poo, you can't just love yourself. <laughs> like, if you're carrying a great sense of shame, you can't, and you, someone says, love yourself, you can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible. The only way you can apply that love yourself, so to speak, if we can use that language, is because you're loved by one who knows you fully. The Christian response is far more realistic. So come out of the shadows, brothers and sisters. We as Christians have been people who've come into the light. We don't hide from each other. I've met so many brothers and sisters who walk in shameful isolation. Shame about mental health. Shame about their weaknesses. Shame about their hidden sin. About their perverted imagination or about pornography or about all sorts of things that they wish no one else would know about about them. And that eats them up. Shame is corrosive to community. Shame will pull us away from each other. Actually, we have been brought into the light, and so we have the privilege of revealing ourselves to each other, so to speak. You know what I mean? There's the sense of, actually, we show each other what's really going on. We, actually, I think this is actually speaking about the lost art of confession. You know, in the Catholic Church, you, there was the idea that you had to confess your sins to a priest. And we, as Protestants, reacted the other way and said, you don't, you know, confess to God. Actually, what we've lost is the idea there is actually a power in confessing to someone else, in speaking out your sin to someone else. Why? Two reasons. One, you experience the liberating grace of God in that person's response. It means when someone confesses sin to you, you remind them of the grace of God. You don't condemn them, right? So it should be obvious, but I just, just met, let's just say that. So uh, you, you feel it if the person is walking with Christ in that way. Second of all, as you con- confess it, you actually confront the reality of that. It's almost like when you just keep the sin in your head and you just forgive yourself, and you say, thank you, God, thank you for the forgiveness. You're, not, you're very easy to not really deal with that sin, to kind of to just not, you almost imagine it. And when you can speak it out, it's like you suddenly becomes real in front of you and the full reality of your ugliness is exposed and the grace of God. It's like when you confess your sin, you're reenacting this very moment as your brother or sister is playing the place person of Christ and saying, reminding you of forgiveness as you reveal all to them. 1 John 1, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession is painful and wonderfully liberating, just as this moment was painful for the woman and wonderfully liberating. So Christ has seen your ugliness and still loves you. There's no point in hiding now, brothers and sisters. Second of all, Christ cleanses the unclean. He's not defiled by her uncleanness. There's often a sense in the New Testament where, where you look at it and you think, there's a, there's a person who's an outcast, a person who's unclean, and the reason why people are not going near them is because they say, if I touch them, I'll be defiled. But it's quite the opposite. As Christ touches her, so to speak, he cleanses her rather than being defiled by her. 
Christ, you see this pattern throughout Christ's ministry. Christ is the great undefiler. You see this a number of different signs, that he, he, uh, miraculous healings, that are significant for what they represent. In Mark chapter 1, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. It's not just about leprosy. Most of us don't experience leprosy. No one I know experiences leprosy today. But it's a picture of Christ's cleansing power. All the way through the Gospels, you see again and again, Christ goes to the outsider, goes to the defiled one, the unclean one, and cleanses them. Think about the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, uh, has a menstrual sickness of some sort, and she would have again been considered unclean. And yet she touches him. And Jesus' response is delight. She, he should have been offended. He should have said, why are you touching me? Don't you realize I'm a religious leader and you're unclean? He's delighted. He says, woman, your faith has made you well. Again and again, Jesus crosses the threshold and touches the unclean and makes them clean. The leper, the woman with the bleeding, Matthew and Zacchaeus, two tax collectors who are unclean by their association with the Romans, who carry a sense of social shame. Jesus meets them and invites them in to be his disciples. And the other one, he has dinner with him. He honors him and shows him dignity. Again and again, the pattern of Christ is unshaming the shamed, cleansing the unclean. And actually, I think this really just points to the great act of cleansing, which is the cross. The cross is Christ's great move to cleanse humanity. First of all, you've got to see the cross is is a great degrading act. It's an act of shame in itself. As Christ is hung naked on a tree, who's spat at and humiliated by the people. He, in some sense, is taking on shame at that moment. But it's a great exchange takes place. 2 Corinthians says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes on our sin. He becomes sin. And in doing so, he takes on our shame. He takes on the shame of sin. He becomes that great shame offering on the cross. And he absorbs it onto himself. And what does he give us back? Righteousness, cleanness. He washes us clean. We have to see that the cross is a great cleansing act. Some of us, for me, this is an incredibly precious thought. That, that the cross is cleansing. I, many, some of you know I had a very broken sexual past before I became a believer. And these verses um, really explain, I think, the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, have meant a lot to me as I've read them again and again. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed. You were washed. <laughs> You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is a past reality. You can imagine many of them standing in the congregation, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, all sorts of men and women who I think would have carried shame and saying, no, 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 you were washed. That's happened now. You don't need to carry that shame anymore. As you encounter Christ, as you come to the cross, you leave your, just as you leave your sin at the cross, you leave your shame at the cross. That means that if you carry shame now, it's misplaced. 
Sure, we don't, we don't believe in shamelessness. We don't believe that you just go around doing anything and say, I don't care, I, I'm shameless. That's not a good thing. <laughs> it's right when you commit sin that you experience a moment of, you experience shame. When your sin is exposed, there is shame there because it's, like, it's almost like an inextricable, um, it's a kind of spiritual reality. If you sh- commit sin, you... <laughs> Careful. If, maybe I should slow down a little bit. <laughs> if you commit sin... <laughs> shame will follow. If you commit sin, shame will follow. Those two are inextricably linked. And yet, as you come to the cross again and again, as you remember Christ's sacrificial death and his willingness to take on shame, to bear the disgrace of your sin, to be publicly humiliated, you know that Christ has taken that shame on himself. By the way, this is true. This has been true from throughout history. Uh, back to Leviticus chapter 16. The moment, the Day of Atonement, God's people are the two ways that God deals with sin. He, there's a sacrificial offering, but there's also an offering where the sin is laid on the goat and the goat is sent into the wilderness. And it's a reminder that the high priest prays over that goat. It's like he's discharging the people's sin onto the goat and then the goat goes away. It's a sense of which that sin that you've done is not on you anymore. That sin that was done to you is not on you anymore. Do not carry it. And yet so often we live in a cycle of shame and sin where we sin and then we feel shame. And so we think, well, I'm just a dirty dog, so I'm going to go back to my sin. And the only thing that will stop that cycle is the grace and cleansing power of Christ and his blood on the cross. Or the way you hold on to your past, the way you remember those moments, those things you did from years ago, Christ would say, no, I've dealt with that. I've taken away the sin and the shame. But this is more than simply release from shame. It's not that he just de-shames this woman and then she's kind of like, okay, great, I'm here now, I've lost my shame. She's made clean so she can come and become a true worshipper of the living God. So she can receive the living water that Christ offers. It's like, you know, back to Jeremiah chapter 2. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. He talks about how his people have committed two sins. They have, they have forsaken the living water of, of the living God. And they've turned to broken, empty cisterns of water, stagnant water. It's like Christ says... I see that you've, you've immersed yourself in dirty water. I can see you've got yourself all dirty. Let me take that away. Let me wash you clean. And here is the living water that you were looking for. Maybe, maybe this woman was seeking some kind of satisfaction. Maybe she thought hus- the husband, it was this man or this man or this man that would finally satisfy her. And all the while, Christ is saying, no, it's none of those men. None of those men who might cruelly discard you. None of those men who will let you down. It is me. I am the one who has the living water that you are longing for. I'm the one who has something better than anything else. Come and drink, my sister. Come and drink, my daughter. Come and receive living water. One final point, really, is I want to emphasize to you is that salvation, so we talked about how Christ um, sees our ugliness and draws close to us. We see how he cleansed us. The last one I want to raise for you is the idea that Christ restores our dignity in salvation. Christ restores our dignity in salvation. See how Jesus treats this woman. See the dignity by which he treats her. Even the greeting that he uses for her is a kind of neutral one. You know, like, like, it sounds silly, but it's so different to how she would have been treated. How she would have been kind of almost considered a kind of dog. And yet he, he, he eats with her. He asks her to give him a drink. There's a sense of which he is honoring her. Think about how you would feel if the president or the prime minister or whoever, someone really important and famous that you really value, came to your house and said, can I want to eat with you? 
how dignifying, how honoring it is to be associated with the king, the great righteous Lord, the Messiah of all, has come and visited her, has come and drunk with her, so to speak, or invited her to eat with him. Think about how Christ dignifies the shamed, how he touches the untouchable, how he touched that woman who hadn't been touched for 12 years, how he invited Zacchaeus into his house, who was a social prior and no one would have eaten with. Salvation is the restoration of dignity. We, we very often lose sight of this. Just think about what it means to be made in the image of God. Human beings are made carrying the, 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 an image of the living God. They are made with profound worth and dignity to be an image bearer of the living God, to be a vice regent ruling over this earth under God's authority. That is a place of profound dignity. By the way, it's so much more dignity than you are a meaningless bunch of cells who came about through a bunch of biological processes with no, that gives you no dignity and no value and says, actually, you can cast you aside because you're just a bunch of flesh. No, the, no, the living God says you are made in his image. You are valuable. But when we sin, we mar that image. Sin is a, a kind of self-destructive act. As we are sinned against or we sin, we are destroying the image of God. You see this in sometimes someone who's been utterly brutalized or like maybe someone who's been a drug addict for 30 years. You think, I actually can't, you can barely see their humanity. You can see it, but it's, it's clouded within a veneer of kind of sin that has ravaged them and almost destroyed them. And that, in a sense, whether you can see it or not, that is what sin is doing. It's destroy, pride destroys that humble meekness that you're intended to operate. Lust destroys that beauty of what should be a monogamous, one flesh, complementary union. Instead, men and women are ravaged by lust and by desires that take them all over the place into destructive and sinful behaviours instead of this beautiful image of the living God intended for mar- what marriage is. Sin undermines and desecrates the, the, the image of God, of who we are. And yet when we come to Christ, he restores our dignity. He says, actually, come to me, son of the living God. Come to me, daughter. Come to me, worship. Become a worshipper of the living God. A worshipper who worships in spirit and truth. Don't stay here as a worthless dog in the eyes of your culture and your own eyes. Instead, come and become a worshipper of the living God. That is dignifying. That is honoring. I remember myself as I came to Christ, that sense of, a great sense of dignity that I found in Christ. I'd been humiliated and shamed because of my own sin and sin that's done against me in some sense. And I, when, I, when I encountered Christ, I found a profound sense of I am God's man. I have received his honor and dignity. I will be honored with him when he returns that has, that has undermined and kind of restored that which was lost from the shaming and the insults and the humiliation of culture. It's beautiful. We experience sanctification from the sins that have defiled us. So we no longer walk in the sins that ravaged our humanity and undermined us. We instead take on a purity and holiness of Christ. As we resemble him, our honor and dignity is restored. We receive honor by association. You are now a daughter or son of the king. There is honor in that reality. You are hidden with Christ. You are Christ's spotless bride. You now have the truth. You can refute the lies, those shaming words that have been said to you. They don't belong here. I think, you know, we talk about Satan as the accuser. There's a sense in which Satan is the shamer. Satan is the condemner. And Christ says, no, there is no condemnation. That shame that, that society or people have put on you or Satan's put on you is not true. I restore you and I put the truth of God that you are my daughter. Do not allow yourself to be ravaged by these lies. There may be work that what God wants to do in your life to help you to restore and to take hold of the dignity that he intends for you as his daughter or son. We remember, as this all, when we come to the end of time, when Christ comes back, we will not be put to shame. 
In you they trusted and were not put to shame. We will be vindicated one day as Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. We will, we will be vindicated with him. We will, in some sense, share with him in his honor and glory. And we will be in a world where there's no more shame, no more sin, no more humiliation, no more lies, no more sin to mar the image of God in you. It's a beautiful reality that we seek to embody now as we trust in the, in the, in the grace of God and put on that grace. Hold on to the reality of who God has made you to be, what he says about you. And so I want you to, as we close, I want you to see the beauty of transformation here. This woman went from a shamed woman, shame was her husband, so to speak, to being a woman who is dignified, who Christ saw everything about her, and he welcomed her in. And he loved her as he loved her as he loved her. He offered her living water, and she was liberated by this reality. The woman who was isolating and hiding away went to the whole town and said, come and see the man who told me everything I did. She exposed herself because she was no longer carrying shame. See the beauty of Christ who sees us in our ugliness, who sees the heart of humanity and is drawn towards that, just drawn towards us, who took on shame so that we could be made clean. And so we embrace a shame-free reality now. We hold on to the cleansing blood of Christ. It may be that we need to begin some healing work in your life. It may be that we need to invite God to continue to work out this. And there's some sense to which this truth is experienced in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we may want to, you may want to come and pray with us afterwards. But even if this is not your personal experience, let me invite you to set about the work of declaring liberty to the captives. We live in a world that carries some glimmer of the reality of sin and knows about the reality of shame. And it's our job to go and preach the gospel to them to remind them that Christ has come, not to remind them, to tell them that Christ has come and has liberty to the captives. So even if this isn't your experience, we have a great mission, a great privilege to declare this liberty and this anti-shaming to the world around us. What a privilege. Shall we pray? Shall we give thanks to God? Guys, you want to come up and worship? Lord, we, we want to <laughs> thank you for this incredible gift. I want to thank you that you drew close to us. That you saw the ugliness in us and you didn't move away from us. You moved towards us. That you entered into our shame. That you took on the disgrace of the cross. That you became sin. That you were publicly disgraced and humiliated on our behalf. And that you have given us righteousness. That you have cleansed us. That we are restored and being restored. I want to pray for anyone here who's carrying misplaced shame. I want to pray that they would receive the the reminder, the moment that you have made them clean. That they would take hold of this righteousness again. That they would be restored. For those who have been carrying shame because of things done to them. I pray they would know that you have removed the sin that was done to them as well as sin that they have done. I pray that brothers and sisters would walk out of this room with a strong sense of your restoring power, your grace and your cleansing power. We thank you for that reality. Help us to declare this gospel to the world, to show the captives that there is liberty found in Christ and to draw them to him. 
to draw them to you. Amen. Amen. I suspect there's all sorts of ways that God wants to speak and work in you now. And I want to just invite you to stay in that posture of inviting him to speak to your heart. Um, please stay seated for a moment and Joel will invite us to stand. as we just, just stay in that posture of inviting God to speak. Invite God to speak to you. Invite God to work in your heart. And Joel will let you know when we can stand and worship.